Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. David Whitcomb. Dr. Whitcomb is with the University of Pittsburgh and the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. He's a professor of medicine, cell biology, physiology, and human genetics. And he's also the chief of the Division of Gastroenterology, Heptology, and Nutrition, and is also the founder and director of the Center for Genomic Sciences. Uh, Dr. Whitcomb, it's a pleasure to have you on Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you. It's great to be here. I know you have a vast array of uh, interests, and uh, you're certainly internationally recognized for the fine things that you've done in areas like pancreatitis, inflammatory bowel disease, and others. But I think that in terms of the, this particular discussion, you might want to just focus on looking forward at your vision in terms of a variety of issues. I've heard you speak about your vision for personalized medicine. Uh, can you briefly describe that particular area? What do you mean by personalized medicine, and how might it affect you, me, or some of the listeners to this podcast? Well, this is a very exciting time in the history of science because we are on the verge of a major breakthrough in the uh, diagnosis and treatment of complex disorders. Uh, personalized medicine is looking at all of the factors in an individual person, so we give the right medicine to the right person at the right time in the right amounts so that they get better from the disorder that they have or we are able to prevent a serious problem that cannot be reversed with uh, modern therapy. So knowing exactly how to approach this has really been a challenge. Many people are excited about the thought of personalized medicine, but uh, the ability to begin delivering it has been a little more challenging. I think that the best way to understand personalized medicine is to discuss it in contrast to allopathic medicine, which is the form of medicine that's currently practiced. Allopathic medicine was uh, developed out of the germ theory of disease where you had one infectious agent that caused a typical disease and if you got rid of the, the germ then the person got better. The ability for us to identify germs has really progressed very nicely with the use of the scientific method and with the ability to use reductionist approach to zero in on a single agent that causes a disorder. In contrast, personalized medicine is uh, aimed at diseases that have three or four or five factors which all have to be present to cause the perfect storm, which causes one organ but not the others to begin collapsing, scarring, or otherwise uh, to be dysfunctional in response to common environmental factors that other people are able to handle very easily. And the challenge has been trying to use reductionist approaches to find five different things simultaneously, and the five different things are not necessarily the five in each patient. So what we're doing is we are beginning to learn how to unscramble these very complicated diseases which may have a simple solution. And this is the difference between allopathic medicine and personalized medicine and why we have to move forward in personalized medicine in order to have progress in medicine. I think this is uh, quite fascinating because as I understand the situation, 
you can have two patients that have the, the apparently the same symptoms, but in one case, the outcome may be scarring of an organ, and in the other case, they get better. Is that is that a correct understanding? Uh, that's one of the consequences of inflammation in a tissue. The amazing observation has been that uh, children, for example, or infants will have a surgical procedure and they will heal with almost no scar, whereas uh, an adult will have significant scarring at the site of a, uh, a surgical procedure. Some people have a worse problem with scarring than others. And in fact, the disorders that my academic group is studying, which is digestive disorders, including diseases of the esophagus, stomach, pancreas, liver, and intestine, uh, are ones in which some patients have inflammation and end up with pain. Others have inflammation that end up with severe scarring and the loss of organ function. Others end up with inflammation that turns into cancer. And uh, others uh, don't get inflammation from the same process. So trying to understand why some people end up with scarring while others have healing, why some end up with cancers and others don't, why some end up with severe pain and others don't, is part of the problem that we face in approaching personalized medicine. What are the differences between people that make such a profound difference in, uh, in different organs and under different conditions that lead to the diseases that uh, really plague so many millions of people? You uh, refer to this as a problem, and I understand it from that perspective, but it seems to me, considering the, the facts of nature that we, we know, this is also an opportunity to solve these problems because of looking at this from a personalized approach. No, that's a very good uh, point, and with the new technologies, we really have the tools we've never had before to begin looking at every single genetic variation, to begin to look at very complex metabolic problems, to begin looking at environmental issues and to bring them together. I think the other observation that's very important is that we have classified diseases according to either scarring or inflammation of an organ, and it's all bundled together as a single disease, such as Crohn's disease, chronic pancreatitis, liver cirrhosis. These actually are not diseases. These are scars left over after an unknown disease caused an injury, and the response to the injury is abnormal because of the excessive scarring. Some of these patients have terrible pain, others don't. Some of them, as I mentioned, get cancer and others don't. So to solve this, we are taking a new approach, which is actually reverse engineering. It's taking a complex system, breaking it down into its component parts, solving the individual parts, and then putting them back together, keeping track of how they interact with each other so that we are actually solving many problems in order to approach what in the past has been considered a single disease. So this certainly seems to be a, a multidisciplinary problem, and I know you've got a very well-renowned multidisciplinary team uh, addressing these 
opportunities and issues. Well, this has been a very difficult problem to solve, and my vision has been to bring together teams of physicians that are focused on specific organs, teams of scientists that work on specific types of diseases such as immunology, genetics, cell injury and regeneration, cancer development, and to bring epidemiologists in who are able to look at large groups of patients and find similarities and differences, to bring modelers in who take the combination of factors that seem to travel together and find out or predict how they're organized, and to bring outcomes researchers together to say, boy, if we knew that factor A was present and factor B was present, and those two are required to cause a a disease C, what happens if we intervene in those patients? Can we prevent the disease? So the requirement then is to have teams of people, both physicians, scientists, epidemiologists, modelers, and outcomes people working together in a way that each person gets the information they need to work in the discipline of their expertise, but to keep track of the information in a way that uh, we can eventually solve the individual components and put them back together again. So we have really focused on three major organ systems, the pancreas, the liver, and the intestine in Crohn's disease, and have brought experts in each of these diseases that focus on either genetics or immunology or neurosciences, whatever the discipline is, and have them working together as a team. And of course, the big issue is you end up with a tremendous amount of data, so information management and mathematical modeling is also required in order to keep track of the pieces and to put them back together again. The division that I'm running now has over 50 faculty members, all of whom are organized and synchronized to work as an organism that has different parts that are interacting and working together. And by designing a large division as a single unit with a single purpose, It allows us to get the information necessary to solve the component parts and put them back together. Once this is done, then everyone can use the same models with uh, simple diagnostic techniques to uh, identify which problems are going to arise in which patients under what conditions and to begin to see whether or not bad things are happening and know how to prevent them. Sounds like a very fascinating and a very pioneering endeavor, and we should spend a moment shortly to get an indication as to to where this technology development is, but I'd like to talk briefly about inflammation. You clearly characterized inflammation as something that's bad, but we've had previous guests on this podcast who talk about inflammatory processes and the fact that they're necessary to promote healing. Can you clarify where inflammation is good and where it's bad? Well, this is a huge area of research and is so vitally important because uh, humans and other animals live in a hostile environment in which different types of germs and viruses and other invaders have the potential of uh, destroying the organism if they should take root and uh, begin multiplying. So the body has an immune system that is structured and organized to challenge the major 
types of invasions or injuries. We generally classify the type of response as ones that are targeted against viruses, targeted against bacteria, and targeted against parasites. And each of these invade in a different way and have different effects. And uh, the body is able to switch the immune response to target each of these different invading organisms. In addition to that, the body is also designed to respond to injuries, both small and large, where uh, a tissue is severely damaged. And the immune system is very important in coming in and cleaning the injured area from bacteria and viruses and other uh, particles, and then allowing the tissues to begin to regenerate. And as I mentioned earlier, for some reason, children and infants have a much greater capacity to regenerate than adults do. And part of this may have to do with uh, the number of stem cells or other factors that are being investigated. So the immune system plays a very important role. Inflammation is a, also a complex problem, and it's a component of the overall immune system. And that's where uh, white blood cells rush to an area and release a number of signals and compounds that address the specific need at that place in that time. One of the major organs that we work with is the intestine. And the intestine is an amazing organ because it has a surface area of over 2 million square centimeters that is wrapped up in villi and folds, compacted into a 20 to 30 foot tube. The surface area is important because every single molecule that is needed for growth and development and injury is individually sorted and brought into the body or excluded from the body through this surface area. And bacteria and viruses and other things that are dangerous, including toxins, also have the potential of coming in. And so the intestine is continually having a low-grade inflammation. And if you were to take a piece of intestine and to use special stains to look at white cells, you'll find that there are millions upon trillions of white cells in the intestine at all times that have a low-grade, stable inflammation. There are some diseases that we identify by the location and nature of the disease in which the immune system is out of balance. It tends to cause either too much of a virus-type response or too much of a bacterial response or too much of a parasite response, and the consequence is continued damage to the intestine rather than protection, and either scarring or ulcerations or other parts of the immune response that actually injure the person rather than just the uh, potential invading uh, feature. Crohn's disease is an example in which the last part of the small intestine becomes inflamed and scarred in people for no apparent reason. It's not happening all the time. It tends to flare and then to, to get better. But in some people, they don't get better. They end up with scarring of the intestine and the inside 
of the intestine becomes pinched off as the scar contracts. And this is Crohn's disease and requires some people to uh, have a section of their intestine surgically removed and the two good components brought back together so that the food can travel all the way through the body and uh, uh, finally be eliminated. So the question we have is why do some people have this terrible inflammation at this level? Our group has been one of the leaders in looking at genetic causes for Crohn's disease. And together, they have worked with a consortium put together by the National Institutes of Health, specifically the NIDDK, which works on digestive diseases. And they've identified the problem looking at a genetic approach. The surprise is that instead of one gene causing this problem, there's over 30 genes that have been identified. And none of them are present in all people and we don't understand how the 30 genes all seem to work in very different ways at different locations under different influences to cause the same problem of scarring. Another important question is not just the diagnosis of Crohn's disease, but the prognosis. What's going to happen? Because if we look at a biopsy of the intestine, any physician or any pathologist can say, this is Crohn's disease. If the patient says, well, what's going to happen to me? We say, well, there's one of three things that can happen. Either we'll remove it with an operation and you'll be fine, or we'll remove it with an operation and it may come back and there will be some inflammation going on and over the next 20 years you're likely to have to have another operation. Or about a third of the patients have a terrible course in which a huge part of their intestine becomes inflamed it spreads to other organs. There's all kinds of complications. We have to use extremely powerful and expensive medicines in order to try to hold the inflammation in control. It may require the removal of the intestines, and the patient either has to be fed intravenously for the rest of their life or have a small intestinal transplant. But we don't know which patient is in which group and who needs the high-powered medicine, who needs nothing, and how to sort it out. This is where personalized medicine can be applied to inflammatory bowel disease. We want to know who's at risk and why, and if they do develop inflammation, what is the right treatment for them? Are they, do they just need a small operation that can be done laparoscopically and they're done, or do they need to have intensive medication in order to control a severe inflammatory problem? And why do they have this problem, and are there other ways of stopping it rather than completely knocking out the immune system? So these are the kinds of problems that we're wrestling with and we're beginning to solve. Dr. Whitcomb, this has been a fascinating introduction to this very challenging set of problems that you and your team are addressing. On occasion, some of our podcast listeners are interested in these technologies because of personal or family situations. And let me acknowledge at the outset that based on this discussion, this is clearly a work in progress. But what is the state of the art in terms of clinical care for these issues which you have just begun to introduce to us? The application to the patient is just now beginning to uh, come into focus. So what we're beginning to understand is that a diagnosis, as we were taught in medical school, 
is really not sufficient in order to give the best treatment. We're beginning to focus on the components of the disease that we can treat and to identify targets that we would like to treat in the future. An interesting observation is that in the literature, there are a number of studies that come up with a statistic, and that is the number of people that are required to be treated before one person improves. And it's often uh, six to eight people get medicine that is not helping them before another person or, or the sixth person will get effective improvement. And we now have the ability of, of uh, probing into the differences between these patients to find out exactly who responded and why. Each of the diseases that we treat in our digestive disorder center has uh, examples of subsets of patients that respond very well and uh, patients that don't respond at all and need to have a completely different approach. So I think that we have the framework to begin teasing out the details that tell us who's going to respond and who isn't going to respond. We're not quite there yet in that we don't have the uh, analysis uh, completed and the information, but we're beginning to see patterns emerging that are going to be very, very helpful in the future. Very interesting, Dr. Whitcomb. You've mentioned the Digestive Disorder Center. We will post on the uh, podcast website some contact information if anyone's interested in further exploring the state-of-the-art that you offer to patients in this regard. You've mentioned in the course of this discussion issues like the risk of cancer. Can you elaborate on that in terms of these issues that you're exploring and pursuing? Well, cancer is a major concern, especially if an individual recognizes that there's a lot of individuals with cancer within their family tree. And what has been recognized is that patients who have inflammation in their esophagus have a high risk of esophageal cancer. People with cirrhosis of their liver have a high risk of liver cancer. People with inflammation of their pancreas have a higher risk of pancreatic cancer. People with inflammation of their colon in ulcerative colitis have a high risk of uh, colon cancer. We recognize that the risk is markedly increased in these organs, but not everybody gets cancer. There is a subset of patients that seem to be very sensitive to getting cancer and others that are resistant. So it's not just having inflammation in a particular organ. It's having inflammation plus a secondary risk for cancer. One of the approaches is to begin looking at the DNA repair genes and the ability to eliminate cancers in uh, individuals that do have inflammation. So in addition to collecting information in all of our patients about whether or not they have uh, cancer in their family and what type of organ is inflamed, uh, we're beginning to sort out the issues about who with inflammation is at high risk of cancer the types of factors that increase risk and the types of factors that decrease risk. So smoking is important for a number of cancers. If you're at risk, that has to be eliminated. We found, for example, if you have chronic inflammation of your pancreas, you have a very high risk of cancer if you smoke. 
it more than doubles your risk and decreases your life expectancy by 10 years. And so with chronic inflammation of the pancreas, it's essential to stop smoking. Dietary factors can be important as well, and we're beginning to learn that some types of uh, fruits and vegetables and avoiding certain uh, other foods also has a big impact on the stress on, on the organ and the risk of cancer. So one of my other roles is uh, one of the uh, Giant Eagle Professor of Cancer Genetics at the uh, University of Pittsburgh Cancer Centers and the UPMC Cancer Centers. And uh, we're trying to study why some people seem to be at such high risk from a genetic standpoint, linking it with environmental factors and uh, lifestyle factors that are changeable and that uh, risk can be uh, reduced from this area. Dr. Whitcomb, you did mention before that uh, some patients experience uh, pain while others have uh, afflictions without pain. Can you elaborate, please? Yes. As uh, physicians, especially at a tertiary care center, we see patients that are sent to us with unrelenting severe abdominal pain, either related to Crohn's disease, related to chronic pancreatitis, related to esophageal disorders and GERD, or other uh, problems. And it is very interesting because with the pancreas, for example, by looking at a CAT scan and seeing how much inflammation and damage there is, it's not possible to determine how much pain the person is suffering. There are some people with severe inflammation that have no pain, and the inflammation was found by accident. There's other individuals with only a small amount of inflammation that complain of severe pain. This is the same with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Some patients tend to have much more severe pain than others, and it's not psychological. We have put together one of the leading pain centers in uh, the United States and probably in the world through our division in collaboration with the Department of Neurobiology at the University of Pittsburgh and the Department of Anesthesiology. And the pain center has eight faculty members from our division who are trying to solve a problem about why some people have such severe pain and others don't. One of the factors that seem to be important is the response of nerves to injury. In the course of injury and inflammation, there is an increase in growth factors that help the nerves to sustain damage and injury and to uh, regenerate and to begin returning toward normal. In animal models of pain, it's possible to change the growth factor concentration and the amount and to replicate some of the things that we see in the patient clinic. Most of the time, if somebody, for example, burns their hand, there's about an hour of very intense pain and swelling and redness, followed by a day of very sensitive skin, followed by a week of a little bit of tenderness, and it returns to normal after that. By changing the concentration of these growth factors, it's possible to have experimental animals that have severe pain at the beginning of the injury, but it never turns to normal. It does not ease off over the next hour and over the next seven days. It continues to have severe pain, 
for a very long period of time. And this is hypersensitivity following injury. Using these types of models, we're beginning to see that some patients have severe pain because the upregulation of pain sensitivity doesn't shut off, and other people never have pain because the hypersensitivity never turns on. And so now we're beginning to look at genetic variations and other factors in our patients to find out why some people have severe pain and others don't. This is another very, very important area because there are many thousands of people whose lives are destroyed by severe abdominal pain and they're almost unable to function. An irritable bowel syndrome is also included in this group and nobody knows why. But by looking at inflammation and the response to injury and regeneration, we're beginning to, to be able to tease this out. The other important thing that uh, our division is designed to study is to by, by looking at inflammation, pain, and cancer, and scarring in the intestine, looking at the same features in the pancreas and the same features in the liver, allow us to begin to sort out which factors are organ-specific and which factors are part of a broader system, the immune system, the nervous system, the DNA repair system, the vascular system. Which of these problems are problems of a major system that affects many organs and which ones are specific to individual organs? And the reason this is important is that as we learn things about individual tissues, we can figure out very rapidly which treatments are going to be effective for multiple diseases in multiple organs versus targeted toward a single disease in a single organ. So mixing and matching the information and comparing back and forth, working together as an integrated team, uh, having studies in which we are comparing and contrasting similarities and differences. These are the things that allow us to begin understanding these very complex disorders and using reverse engineering approaches to come up with a model for an individual patient that tells us, are they going to have inflammation of an organ? If so, which organ? What are the signs that inflammation is starting? If they do have inflammation, will they end up with pain? Will they end up with scarring? Will they end up with organ dysfunction? Will they end up with cancer? Will they have a combination of these things? Are other organs at risk? We want to know before these problems start. We want to be able to know why they're starting. We want to know, be, able, be able to know how to stop it early in its tracks so that individuals can leave a normal, healthy life without these terrible diseases having such a huge impact on them, huge amount of health care cost. These are the, the, the problems that uh, personalized medicine can tackle and that we are working night and day in order to solve. Dr. Wickham, this has been a fascinating discussion. I'm impressed with what's been done by you and your colleagues to date, and I'm certainly optimistic about the future based on the program that you've described. For those uh, who might be interested in clinical contact with Dr. Whitcomb or his uh, clinical colleagues, we'll post the contact information on the podcast website. I would remind our listeners that uh, we welcome 
suggestions in terms of areas to cover on this podcast, but I also remind you that we're not able to diagnose or attempt to diagnose problems via the Internet. I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors these podcasts and look forward to joining you in two weeks with another exciting interview. Thank you.